This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home Podcast. This is Francesco brewing insights from Brussels City, Belgium. We are currently at the Bytenook, an incredible space in central Brussels. Please check the website bytenook.com. That's B-Y-T-E-N-O-O-K.com. <laughs> and of course, for those who are not familiar with spelling, uh, feel free to... Uh, Point your browser to datasciencesatome.com where you find all the links that you need. So today I am not alone. In fact, I'm with uh, an old good friend, I should say, <laughs> Richie Cotton uh, from uh, DataCamp. Hey, Rich, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing really well, thank you, uh, Francisco. It's great to be on the show. <laughs> Likewise to have you. Uh, in fact, we had a, a few gigs together back in the days and also recently. Um, and of course, we are going to share some of the conversations that we already had on our website, datasciencesatome.com, um, together with many other websites and links that we definitely find interesting during the show today. Um, Richie, for the few, I should say, uh, who don't know him yet, <laughs> is a data evangelist at Data Camp, uh, is the host of the Data Framed podcast, and uh, he's written two books on R programming and created, well, 10 Data Camp courses on data science that have been taken by probably more than 700,000 learners. That's amazing, Richie. How did you do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, this is the joy of online education is it just scales really well. So I think, you know, a decade ago, I could never have imagined teaching hundreds of thousands of people, but now it's happened and it's pretty amazing. Yes. And uh, I think that the conversation today is going to be very valuable for, for, of course, for the listeners of Data Science at Home. And not only because we are... Mm, let's say, discussing a bit what's going on in the education uh, field, which uh, is uh, probably definitely deserves a lot more attention these days that when, you know, these big changes in uh, data science, machine learning, and of course, artificial intelligence are happening. And it would be nice to know, for example, how all these things that are happening are affecting, in a way, uh, the education system. Uh, so, you know, the old good days of having the data scientists as, having to learn, for example, statistical distributions, and uh, you come from R, so you know definitely <laughs> a thing or two about statistics. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, staying on that, uh, indeed, this very question, uh, what are the key roles that, uh, let's say, heavily involve artificial intelligence? And according to your opinion, how have they evolved in recent years? Sure. I mean, with all the hype with generative AI in this last year, it's really easy to think, well, generative AI is all of AI, but that's not quite true. I think still the most common roles um, involving AI is going to be people involved in machine learning. So things like linear regression and logistic regression not going away anytime soon. So that means that it's machine learning scientists, machine learning engineers, and of course, data scientists who actually uh, perhaps have the, the most common roles where they're doing something involving AI. Um, and then for generative AI, 
Um, it's kind of interesting. So um, back in October 2023, um, Sam Altman was on stage at the uh, OpenAI Developer Day, and he had this slide showing off all the kind of usage metrics for the OpenAI products. And he divided their customers up into three groups. So that's developers, general users, and businesses. And these three groups have slightly different roles. And so um, the, the developers, these are people who are adding AI features into software mostly. And then you've got the general users, that it's people who want to generate some text. This is like people writing marketing copy, writing code, uh, writing I don't know, stories, all sorts of things. So these are the sort of your chat GPT users. So lots of different roles involving AI. Definitely. And uh, can you provide some insights into the specific skills that are required for these roles? Um, again, framing everything, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but I will on the entire show today, uh, putting everything in the frame of generative AI technologies. I mean, this is the big, big trend today. Absolutely. Um, so I think um, the, the biggest audience is going to be these general users. And so a lot of um, the most important skills there are just understanding what is possible and what isn't possible with generative AI. Um, so um, you need to understand, like, does this project at work make sense? Uh, if we use generative AI, is this a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, and beyond that, understanding some jargon. So just things like like knowing what is a context window, this is incredibly important to know. Um, and then uh, obviously you need to be able to use ChatGPT, so you need a bit of prompt engineering skills. You need to be able to get sensible outputs. I've seen actually that a lot of uh, people, unfortunately, are kind of abusing, you know, ChatGPT or the GPT family of models. Like indeed, they. I think I have the impression as an observer that they don't spend enough time understanding if they actually need uh, a GPT-based model rather than probably one of the traditional uh, machine learning models. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. So um, um, if you're asking um, GPT to do something like um, arithmetic, then that's about the most inefficient way of doing arithmetic <laughs> possible. I mean, except for maybe humans. I mean, humans, you have to like feed them and house them right. things. So very inefficient. But for computers, yeah, um, these large language models are just an incredibly inefficient way of doing something that a pocket calculator can do faster and more accurately. So there is a, a definite scope for misuse of these models, or at least inefficient use of these models. Hmm. Um, and yeah, uh, I think um, using them, I haven't seen many examples of people using them instead of um, traditional models. You can use them, I've seen using, um, for example, this, the advanced data analysis tool within GPT, or I think it's sort of been folded into GPT-4 now. Um, but yeah, you can get um, you can use the ChatGPT interface and get it to do data science and get it to run some Python code for you. So it, it, it's still the traditional models being run in the background. You just got um, a, a chattier user interface. Well, I've seen, in fact, uh, some people using GPT for some relatively basic data transformations. For example, you know, converting stuff from let's say JSON to CSV stuff like that for for which there is a very structural, uh, structured and, and you know, it's not even a smart algorithm, it's just probably regular expressions and, and very simple things. For these things, have you seen also GPT in action and actually performing uh, well enough? Um, yeah, so actually one of my favorite uses of um, GPT is web scraping because <laughs> it's something I do that's like not very often, but it's often like I have to learn the syntax again every time I do it and you know you spend ages looking through like the structure of the page trying to work out which elements you're supposed to pull out so it's something that's really incredibly tedious to do as a human 
but um gpt is actually pretty decent at it it can yeah. you know navigate the structure of the page and do that sort of thing for you so it's one of those things where the code isn't that hard but right. if it's not something you do regularly it's just painful that that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, in the AI industry in particular, you know, I remember back in the days when I uh, was myself, uh, you know, starting, you know, at the beginning of my career. Of course, we all we all have been there <laughs> at some point. Um, you know, it was very important. I believe it still is, but back in the days. Uh, very important to have some, you know, to be very close to what was called domain expertise, right? Uh, especially in sectors, for example, like um, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, uh, finance, and also fintech. So knowing the domain or uh, sitting next to an expert who spent probably the last two decades in that company, in that sector, and knows everything about it. So that to translate that, you know, these business operations and business, um, let's say, uh, dynamics into uh, machine learning models or a representation for data analytics. Um, now, how did this change uh, with the advent of uh, generative AI? Yeah, I think one thing that stayed the same is that hiring managers are always going to want both technical skills and domain expertise. So um, it's just easier if you have everything. If you know how to do the job already, the company doesn't need to train you. Mm -hmm. Of course, those people are going to be very rare, like knowing everything already. So hiring managers don't generally get what they want. Um, I have to say, getting jobs and even well, starting working in a particular job um, if you only have technical skills but no domain expertise, it's possible but brutal. I've done this a few times in my career where I've switched industries and I'm like, okay, I know some data science, but I have absolutely no idea what this field is about. So I, I started my data career in working in health and safety, then I moved to debt collection, which is a very different field, and then I jumped again to proteomics. And each time I spent about a year just asking very stupid questions. So the sensible option for careers is don't switch industry regularly because it's just uh, it's yeah. a lot of hard work. <laughs> um, I think the flip side to this is that there are a lot of people where they do they have a career where you know they've got domain expertise, but they've suddenly realised actually now I need some technical skills. Now I need to learn about AI because it's just suddenly appeared in my field. So. Uh, certainly a data company, we see a lot of people who already have some kind of career and then they're learning data skills, they're learning AI skills. Um, I think generative AI has changed the technical requirements a bit. I think just because um, you can now generate code, things like learning uh, syntax is a little bit less important than it was. But on the flip side of that, you do need to still understand um, programming concepts well enough to be able to read code and judge is the code that this AI is generated actually reasonable or not? Um, and I think um, just simple stuff like, uh, can you write well, or do you understand how well-structured code looks like? Can you see, is this a sensible function or not, um, is incredibly important. And I think beyond that, um, understanding jargon is also very important because you need to be able to ask the right questions uh, to give a sensible prompt. Yeah, I cannot agree more. And uh, also on this show, we have been, you know, very much in, in favor of GPT models, but also very cautious about what you can actually do, what you can generate, and also having that mindset, like what you just said, in fact, like when you ask a GPT model to generate code for you, uh, I strongly believe that you still need to understand, you know, that code and understand what it does. Not only that, understand how to place 
that piece of code, you know, like, like a piece of a puzzle in the much bigger picture, in the much bigger puzzle that you probably have, it's called your private code base, let's say, which can kind of completes the entire project or, or, or just a part of it. So it's very important. And I keep stressing on this. Uh, I never have enough. <laughs> uh, you know, do not use ChatGPT blindly. Uh, you know, don't just plug and play that code without even looking at it because it can be very dangerous in, you know, for certain sectors, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's a big difference between, as you mentioned, just having um, a simple project, just uh, maybe a throwaway day project for one person and having a larger code base where it's got to be permanent and you're collaborating with others because you want to make sure in the, the latter case that the, the code style matches everyone else's style. Mm -hmm and the naming conventions holes and things like that. So there are a lot more requirements on these sort of enterprise code bases compared to uh, your sort of throwaway uh, analyses. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's uh, kind of switch gear, but not so much. Um, when it comes to skill requirements, because this is kind of the biggest dilemma in education, you know, if you are an AI researcher versus um, an application developer, right? So. Is that still the case? Like these skill requirements differ between the two, let's say, roles or uh, positions, or how did you find it evolving? Yeah, so it's like different. I mean, I interpret the idea of being an AI researcher as someone who's just focused on training models that perform well. So um, in this case, actually, before you even get into the modeling side, like the quality of the AI model is going to be based on the, the data quality. So you do actually need a lot of data manipulation skills and just the ability to like see, is this a good quality data set or not? So just um, these sort of standard things like uh, working with Pandas to be able to clean up data sets, it's still an incredibly important skill if you're working in AI research. And then after that, you get into um, things like your deep learning framework. So this is basically... it. it I think the big change in, in the last few years is that PyTorch has become more uh, the standard um, mm. sort of dis, like uh, surpassing TensorFlow and Keras. So uh, yeah, PyTorch is the is the number one skill you need if you're going to be an AI researcher. Nice. Um, that, it, I, I feel relieved of this because I put all my bets on PyTorch back <laughs> in the days. You <laughs> 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 obviously uh, ahead of the curve there. That's good. Um, yeah, and then um, for the AI application developer, it seems like this is much closer to a software development role. So this means like you've got to be able to work with APIs. There's a lot of either Python or or maybe JavaScript if you if you're making web apps. And then um, yeah, there's going to be lots of like just testing code, being able to make sure it integrates with other bits of software. Right. Okay, so it's a good thing that you know all the off-the-shelf tools and libraries frameworks that we we know for like more than a decade they are still there and it's always uh, good to, to know from a person close to education like yourself that these are you know still very modern tools like even though we had these amazing findings and new insights in the generative ai field or space you know the old good school data science and data transformation is not uh, wiped off <laughs> Absolutely. Although um, in this case, like you can um, automatically generate quite a lot of pandas code, just because there's so much about in the wild. Actually, things like GPT are really good at generating pandas code. Yeah. So because that code is very much present in the let's say Stack Overflows of the world and all the other code code repositories. Uh, so the training set is very strong and very complete in this particular uh, sector. Absolutely. 
That makes sense. I I am myself a Rust developer, and there's not so much there. Rust is uh, relatively young, so we are having issues generating Rust code. Many times we got this very weird hallucinations on Rust code. So <laughs> I don't recommend to... <laughs> Usually I spend some, you know, those very rare times I, I use GPT for generating some Rust code, which is more like, uh, you know, syntax things. I spend more time fixing the bugs <laughs> than actually... <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the new trend. Um, Richie, um, again, you have been, and you're still very close to the education aspect of machine learning, artificial intelligence. Uh, what advice do you have for those people who are actually looking to transition into AI-related roles, especially those who come from a, let's say, less techy or probably no te uh, tech at all background? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think sometimes it can feel like it's an overwhelming career change. But the secret as with anything else, you just take it one step at a time, start at the beginning, um, and just you know, keep learning skills and adding to it. So um, at DataCamp, we often recommend that you don't dive straight into um, doing things with AI, at least not technical things with AI. It's actually better if you want to get into this is to start off with data analysis tasks. So the stuff I mentioned around like dealing with data quality and processing your data for models, that's actually a much easier skill to learn. And so if you, particularly if you're just getting started with programming, do a bit of that first, and then you dive into more traditional machine learning, like go through like learn some scikit-learn or PyCarrot, um, learn like what the models are capable of, like just make some simple neural networks or run some simple neural networks, and then you get into the sort of deep learning stuff. So um, I wouldn't go straight from like, hey, I'm just going to learn Python and PyTorch at the same time. I would start with uh, some of the easier things first. And uh, Richie, let's uh, speak about the work environment and uh, more about you know collaboration within the team or across teams. How does this work environment and team collaboration differ for, let's say, those people like myself in back in the days, working on AI projects independently slash alone <laughs> versus those in a more, uh, let's say, team-oriented and business setting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, whenever you have um, a Hollywood movie, there's always like some computer genius solving some um, problems <laughs> on their own. And that doesn't happen very often in the real world. I mean, most sort of um, reasonable sort of business problems, they require a lot of people to solve them. So, I mean, beyond um, the sort of the machine learning skills, you've got um, maybe like the, the well, as you mentioned, the domain expertise, you've probably got um, commercial staff supporting, like promoting your work, so marketing people and project managers and salespeople. So you're going to have to interact with a lot of different people who have a lot of different um, levels of technical understanding. So, uh, yeah, actually, on data framed, I speak to a lot of executives, and one of my favorite questions is, what sort of soft skills do you need um, mm. or do you look for when you're hiring? I've only ever had three answers to that, and one of them is communication, one of them is collaboration, the other one is ownership. Like, can you just get on and do a job and work well with others? Can you actually speak to them? These are, like, the main skills you need to get through good life, apparently, according to, like, pretty much every executive I've spoken to. Mm. So, yeah. It is incredibly important. Um, in terms of the practical stuff around collaboration, I mean, I think um, a lot of this needs to be built into the the tooling workflows. So, I mean, just things like um, can you work with Git and do a pull request? This is a pretty, like, fundamental skill. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, can you also, like, 
uh, ask sensible questions of your colleagues and can you give sensible answers when, when they ask you stupid questions? These are like uh, pretty basic skills that are very important. Still very act. I mean, very modern in the sense that we thought that with generative AI, you could have actually avoided some or overlooked some of these skills. But actually, uh, again, I'm surprised that according to your observations and definitely experience, these are the recurring skills, soft skills that are still there. So in fact, you know, when you put it like that, these amazing changes or kind of revolutionary changes, the way people work, hasn't happened, uh, at least not how they actually describe with the, you know, with this generative AI and this uh, close to AGI kind of, uh, uh, which by the way, that's not the case, but you know what I mean? Like they are kind of selling, especially many journalists out there, they're kind of selling this new generative AI as really the big game changer, uh, which it is, but many of the dynamics, especially that, you know, involve people uh, and, and teams and collaboration and communication, they're still there. They're still very traditional in a way. Absolutely. And I think maybe one way you can think of it is that um, these AI um, examples, they're going to be additional junior team members. So you're going to be working with humans, but also with um, AI team members as well. So you still need to be able to communicate with those. You just need to be able to commu communicate with AI and communicate with humans. And also being able to communicate with AI in the sense of, for example, prompt engineering and all the, you know, it's it's a different type of skill, but still it's part of the communication uh, setting. You have to speak to a machine, you have to speak in the right way, in the most efficient way, and probably in the most, let's say, yeah, efficient in the sense that you you don't want, you know, you want to give enough context, but not so much because otherwise it's going to be, you know, your quid is going to be an, an among us of, of characters. <laughs> okay, so strategizing on communication, still very uh, modern, still uh, still applicable, even though, even the, you know, this revolution in AI. Richie, I think it's time to nerd out a bit. <laughs> no, jokes apart, I, I would like to switch a bit on the, the conversation towards the more the more technical aspects of uh, what people use, what people learn, and what do you think is um, would be a good investment for the new students, for new people who get close to this world uh, or are you know just starting. So my question is, is Python still king? Absolutely, definitely uh, the king of the moment. So um, certainly on DataCamp, our Python courses are um, the most popular um, for machine learning by a long way. Makes my background is in art. Makes me a little bit sad that ours not quite managed to capitalize on the generative AI revolution. Uh, but yeah, uh, Python is the biggest thing. Um, some people um, want to do things with JavaScript. Just uh, if you come from a web application development background, then JavaScript is going to be your more natural tooling. But uh, I think Python is still the most popular tool. I know you're a huge fan of Rust, and I suspect Rust is going to take off, but more in a sort of back-end library sort of right. situation. So, for example, like in the data manipulation space, like Pandas is the most popular thing, but then because the performance is pretty slow for big data sets, someone went, okay, what if we just swap out the back-end and rewrite it in Rust? And that's that's called Polars, and it's just a faster version of Pandas. So I suspect the same thing's going to happen uh, in machine learning as well and uh, in, in generative AI. And speaking about Polars, we had even an episode back 
I don't know how many episodes ago, uh, but you will definitely find a link in the show notes of this episode on datascienceatom.com if you want to know one thing or two about uh, how Polar's work and why uh, the author decided to rewrite, as uh, Richie just said, uh, the API. Um, in fact, rewrite the entire data frame system, maintaining a very similar API to what uh, uh, to what Pandas has. So, like the transition is not really, uh, you know, it's kind of smooth. Let, let me put it like that. I'm quoting. You can. You guys cannot see that I'm quoting. Quoting smooth in Rust. Nothing is smooth in Rust. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, just to add to that, you, you asked me about like what are the sort of good career choices. Then, so if you want to be a Rust developer, then I suspect there's gonna be like a few very well-paid jobs in terms of uh, creating these backend things. But it's not going to go super mainstream because if you want to as a as a developer as a, or, or a, more of a user of these code, like the front end is probably going to be written in Python just because it has the, yeah. the bigger community at the moment. It's winning. So, yeah, yeah, you can't really go wrong with Python at the moment. Definitely. Also, man, maintaining software that already exists or even finding people who can maintain your software is going to be much easier. It's a bit a bit like JavaScript. It's, like, it's impossible to find people who don't know JavaScript these days. So <laughs> you are safe there. Well, let's speak about job security and career longevity. By how things went with R, you are probably one who experienced <laughs> this kind of uh, transition, uh, you know, when it comes to programming languages or technologies. But now it's also integration of AI technologies. So how these things affect uh, job security? Absolutely. Um, so I think a couple of decades ago, working with data was something that was done primarily by dedicated data professionals. And now... Um, there are still dedicated data roles like data analyst, data scientist, data engineer, but actually everyone else has found that they have to use data in their job. So everyone requires some level of data literacy. And I think the same thing is happening now with AI is that um, everyone needs some level of AI literacy. As I mentioned before, you need to know like what's possible with AI, what isn't possible with AI. You need to know, understand some of the terminology. And so I think the same thing is going to happen is that, um, there are going to be dedicated AI roles, but also everyone needs to have a little bit of um, AI skills. Um, I think the big change over the next few years is that the tooling is going to make things easier. So at the moment, if you want to create a chatbot, it still requires quite a lot of fiddling about and working with several different tools. It's complicated, and it probably involves a whole team to create something sensible. Um I think that's going to get a lot easier in the next few years to the point where it's going to be just really pretty straightforward to build um, a chatbot just because the huge amounts of investment in AI at the moment is what, like hundreds of billions of dollars being thrown into these companies? Probably trillions, actually. I think I'm underestimating. I agree with you. And indeed, as we go, things get commoditized. You know, this is kind of raising the bar every decade or a bit less, uh, you know, raising the bar of what can be commoditized next. And I agree with you, chatbot is going to be like uh, like that, snapping, and you have it in pretty much any sector. <laughs> well, that's a good thing because it means that we might be, let's say, we humans might be focusing on other cooler things, probably, or just stay at home. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Doing data science at home. <laughs> And still, about tooling and uh, and probably being more specific with applications of AI, uh, can you highlight some of you know of these that AI that 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 professionals in uh, in uh, various industries should understand or should let's say study or learn 
in order to stay relevant, to maintain a relevancy in their career. Before I get into industry-specific stuff, there's basically four things that people are doing with generative AI that are just applicable to almost every single business. And so number one thing, uh, which is what we just mentioned, chatbots, because chatbots have been around for a decade, but they've mostly been rubbish. And the first thing you do when you get to a chatbot is say, well, how can I speak to a human? Um, and now they're getting quite good. So every business just needs to upgrade their chatbots to something that's actually going to provide a good customer experience. Right. Um, secondly, uh, the rise of vector databases uh, means that semantic search is now a possibility. So until now, um, if you search a website or if you search um, a document, then you have to type in specific keywords and it's a bit hit or miss unless uh, someone's programmed in what are, the, what are the synonyms for all the words you might search for? So semantic search means you can search on the meaning of phrases. That's going to provide a better experience. So every company now needs to provide semantic search on their website for their documents. Um, thirdly, because content is now cheaper to generate, um, having more personalization of content is also a thing basically every company needs to do. So for every different customer segment you have, you want to tailor uh, all your marketing content, certainly, and probably other content as well. And then finally, um, natural language interfaces to software are now possible and not rubbish. So rather than uh, pointing and clicking everything, sometimes it's just easier to type a sentence on what you want. And so that's a pretty useful thing. Uh, so those are the four things that you need to do if you want to have a, a long career uh, using generative AI, learn how to build those four things. No, I'm pretty sure that uh, at Data Camp, there are some of these courses, some courses provided around these topics or do you want to suggest something or maybe provide some links that our listeners can can try it out? Absolutely. I'll provide a link in the show notes, but we have um, a series of code longs uh, that take you from scratch um, into how to become a generative AI developer. So you've got mm. nine different code longs and you get to build um, a chatbot with um, the OpenAI API and using uh, the Pinecone Vector Database. And you also learn about the hugging face stacks. You get to work with uh, building some NLP applications and some uh, image applications as well. That's amazing, Richie. That's very great content. And uh, I also recommend, uh, I was actually recommending hugging face as well, because for those who still don't know, which is going to be very few. Even the Rust ecosystem is getting richer and richer there. Uh, there is Candle, which is a framework that we are actually using in our company as well. So it's not production ready, but it's like very close to, to that, which is impressive for, you know, for Rust being a very, you know, new language, very young language. And being generative AI and putting AI models in inference mode, uh, sorry, LLM models in inference mode, it's not, you know, an easy task because, you know, we are talking about, several billions of parameters. So we kind of really raised the bar on the number of parameters that we are used or we were used uh, a couple of years ago, maybe less, you know, 100 millions was like, oh my God, this neural network is going to crash my laptop or my GPU. Today is like, eh, whatever. Like uh, I'm running a Mistral 7B. <laughs> which is like, it's like the bare minimum. <laughs> amazing times, amazing times. Richie, uh, this was great. I'm, I'm very, very grateful to have you here on this show and also give us a, uh, unfortunately, very short, <laughs> uh, we should do more than this <laughs> because uh, no, it's always good to have an update on what's going on in the educational system, how the educational system works, and also how it evolves when there are new insights in uh, artificial intelligence. There will be many more. I mean, we're just at the beginning. That's what I personally feel. What do you think? 
Absolutely. I mean, we're just getting started with this. So I think the next couple of years are going to be incredibly exciting. Um, I'm particularly looking forward to the rise of multimodal AI. I think um, 2023 has been all about uh, just working with text, but actually working with images, working with audio, even working with video is is getting pretty good. So uh, that's what I'm most excited about in the near future. Likewise. And we're going to make some space on this show to discuss that too. Thank you so much, Richie. Yeah, thank you for having me.